0: we will be raised to new life, and our resurrected body will be like His. So God's destiny is that we will share a resurrected body like Jesus, and also that we will be like Jesus in our character, spiritually and physically. One place we see this amongst others is Romans chapter 8. I want us to look at verses 29 and 30. Now, Verse 30, which actually begins in verse 29, has often been called by some theologians the golden chain of redemption. And so uh, we can see these verses as sort of like a chain link, right, where there are individual pieces uh, 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 that, that form a chain. Because in these verses we see God's salvific plan, God's saving work in the life of the Christian from eternity past to eternity future. It is the golden chain of redemption. It begins in verse 29. Paul writes, For those God foreknew, he also predestined, towards what end? To be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and and sisters. And so Paul begins in verse 29 with the actual end of the line, if you will, with with the destiny, God, those who he foreknew, which is the beginning of the chain, he also predestined to be conformed, this is the end goal, to the image of his son. Let's read verse 30 where it's sort of fleshed out a little bit more. We see a few more steps in the chain. Verse 30 <clears throat> Paul repeats, and those he predestined, that's the starting line, and those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. That is the end of the chain, the end of the line, what Paul describes as being glorified. And so here we see that for all eternity, Christians will be conformed, To the image of God the Father's Son. And at the end of verse 30, he calls this being conformed to the image of Jesus being glorified. Glorification. John Piper, pastor and author, describes this destiny in this way. He says, So glorification is the work of God by which He makes His children both spiritually and physically glorious. It begins now as a process of becoming holy. And it ends at the resurrection, when we receive our new and glorified bodies. And so the simple point that I want us to make this this morning, as we take a look at Jesus being our example, is that God has determined for every blood-bought son and daughter, that we would ultimately and for all eternity be like his son, both in body and in character. That's our destiny. And so then if that is our destiny, it would make sense that God would begin this process of making us like his son, not bodily, that happens at the resurrection, but making us like his son in our character here and now. And so we see that the destiny of the Christian is to be like Jesus, but then that destiny shapes our goal For the here and now. And so we move to point number two. The goal then of the Christian in our life before glory is one and the same as God's destiny for us. It is that we would be conformed to the image of His Son in our thinking, in our words, in our actions, in our attitudes, in our decisions. The goal of the Christian is to be like Jesus. I want to demonstrate this in two different ways. Number one, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. So if you're in Romans, simply turn a little bit towards the end of your New Testament until you find the book... Of Colossians, you'll find Ephesians, you'll find Galatians, you'll find Philippians, and then you will find Colossians. And in Colossians chapter 1, we see that Paul is speaking about his goal, what is his aim, what is his purpose, as he serves in works with Christians. We see in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, that Paul's goal, as he worked with the believers, was that they would become Like Jesus. Verse 28. He is the one, Paul writes, he is the one we proclaim. Speaking of Jesus. Admonishing and teaching everyone. Notice the repetition of everyone here in this verse. It shows up two times in the NIV, three times actually in the Greek. It admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Towards what end, Paul? Why do you proclaim Jesus? Why do you admonish and teach Christians with all wisdom? Towards what goal? So that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. And so in context, after speaking about the fact that he suffers for the sake of reaching Gentile churches, like the Gentile church that he's writing to in the city of Colossae, he tells them and us that Jesus is the message, right? He says, he's the one we proclaim, Jesus Christ. Other, in, other, in other places, he says, we, we, present, we proclaim Christ and him crucified, right? Jesus is the central message of Paul's ministry. But not only does he pro, pro, proclaim Jesus in the gospel, but he does some other things. Two words. Number one, he says, admonishing everyone. The word admonishing has the idea of confronting people, confronting Christians with the intent of changing both their attitudes and their actions. And so Paul says, not only do I preach Christ, but when I work with Christians, I admonish. My my intent is to change them by God's grace. So he admonishes everyone and he teaches them. It, It refers to the presentation of Christian truth so that we and they may grow in wisdom. And so Paul says, I preach Christ, I, I admonish people, I teach them with all wisdom. For what reason? Well, we see the goal, we see the purpose in the phrase, so that we may present everyone in IV, um, no, excuse me, ESV, fully mature, fully mature in Christ. The word in Greek is telios. I might present everyone teleos in Christ. The word has the connotation of fully grown. In other words, you're not an infant. You're not a baby. You're fully grown, mature. It can have the the nuance of um, being complete or being perfect. In other words, it's the opposite of being an infant. It's being fully grown. It's being a mature Christian. You'll see where I'm going to go with this statement in a moment. But I happen to think that kittens are cute. Anybody agree with me out there? Kittens? we think. Generally speaking, kittens are cute. I think that's a consensus. Kittens are cute. I think most kittens are cute. Um, I think most people do. However, I heard someone say, and I don't know who said it or where it was from, and I happen to agree with them. And for you cat lovers out there, please don't hate But I tend to agree with them. They said something like this. The problem with kittens is that they become cats. I don't like cats, personally. They're okay, you know, but I'm a a dog kind of a guy. Sorry, cat lovers. The problem with kittens is that, well, they grow up. They become cats. To make the point, the problem with some Christians is that we stay babies, right? We don't grow. We don't mature in Christ. And so Paul says, my goal... My aim as I work with Christians is not just to get people saved. I want to lead them into maturity in Christ. And so that's Paul's goal for others as he works with them. He wants them to be mature in Christ. Number two, not only was it Paul's goal as he worked with other people that they might become conformed to the image of Christ, that they might be fully mature in Christ, but we also see in places like Philippians 3 that it was his own personal goal as well to become like Christ. So if you have your Bibles and you're in Colossians, it's an easy flip left to Colossians chapter 3. There in Colossians chapter 3, it's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, we get wonderful phrases that Paul opens up his heart about his life and his desires. It's a wonderful section. And there in chapter 3 verse 12, we see that Paul... Well, he practiced what he preached. In other words, it, was, it wasn't just his goal as he worked with other Christians that they might become mature in Christ, that they might be Christ-like, but that was actually his goal as well. The man they called the Prince of Preachers, his name was Charles Spurgeon, over in Britain, he once wrote these words. He said, "A man's life, A man's life is always more forcible than his speech. When men take stock of him, they reckon his deeds as dollars and his words as pennies. It's a neat way of saying that oftentimes people pay more attention to your deeds, right? Well, thankfully, Paul didn't just admonish other people to become mature in Christ. That was his desire as well. Let's take a look at verse 12. Paul writes, not that I have already obtained this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Now, Paul admits here that he hasn't reached his goal. He hasn't, obta- he hasn't already obtained all of this. And so the question becomes what is this, right? He says, I haven't reached my goal. I haven't obtained this. What is this? Well, at least, if you look back at verse 11, it has to refer to the the last line there. Paul says, this is my desire. I long for this. And the last thing he says is is something like attaining to the resurrection from the dead. He says, I want to experience being resurrected from the dead, which means becoming like Jesus in body and in character. Now, it likely refers to other things, right? In verse 11, he says, I want to know Christ, right? I want to know the fellowship of His suffering, becoming like Him in His death. Likely, when Paul says, I haven't obtained all of this he means all of that, all of verse 11. But regardless, he says, I haven't reached that goal yet. I haven't I haven't become glorified yet. I don't know Christ yet as well as I want to. I haven't been conformed to his image as much as I would like. And so in this life, along with Paul, along with all of us, we won't ever fully be like Jesus in our character. We won't ever fully be like him Though Paul says it's his goal. The Greek word teleos. Same word as in Colossians. He said, I, I haven't al- already arrived at completion. I haven't already arrived at maturity. Okay, so you get the picture? I want to know Christ. I want to be conformed like him in every way. Even, even, even in his resurrection. I want to be like him. But I haven't reached my goal I haven't gotten there, so here's the question I want to pose to you. And don't cheat and look at the rest of the verse. Does that stop him from trying? Does that keep him from pursuing that goal? The fact that he won't and he can't reach it? Well, I'll answer that question maybe with another question. I want to show you a little gif here. Ready? Here we go. Boom. It's just a cat kind of day, you know? Um... Does the fact that this cat will never catch its tail, will that keep that cat from trying? Yes or no? Probably not, right? Okay, we can move on from the cats. In the same way, Paul says, notice, look at the, look at the verse, verse 12. He says, but, I haven't reached my goal, but, what does he do? I press on. It's a hunting word. Any of you guys or gals, hunters out there? It's a hunting word. It means to go after something with the intent of catching it. Like the cat goes after his tail with the intent of catching it. Paul says, I can't ever reach it in this life, but guess what? I'm going to keep trying. I'm gonna, it's, it's my goal. I'm going to pursue it just like Jonathan Edwards sums it up well. He said this. He says, a true and faithful Christian does not make holy living an accidental thing. It is his great concern. As the business of the soldier is to fight, so the business of the Christian is to be like Christ. And so the destiny of the Christian, it will happen if you are in Christ. You will be conformed to his image, bodily and in your character. But until that day, what is your goal? What is my goal? It is that we would become increasingly like Jesus, fully mature, teleos. And so it's the believer's destiny to be like Jesus. It's our goal to be like Jesus. Now I want to ask you the question, how does the incarnation, the fact that God became man in the person of Jesus, how does the fact that Jesus is fully human and lived a life as a human being, how does that help us with our goal? Think about it this way. How can being like Jesus be our goal if, in fact, we don't know what Jesus is like? If, we, if he never became human, if he never lived among us, if we don't have the record of how he spoke and how he lived and what he did, how can we then become like him? It necessitates the incarnation. How can we respond if he did, if he never put on flesh and bones to show us? As Dr. Wayne Grudem says, Jesus had to become a man like us in order to live as our example and our pattern in this life. And so now we take a look at point number three. We see that both Jesus and his apostles tell us that Jesus should be our example, that we should imitate him. So let's begin with the words of Christ in John's Gospels. If you have your Bibles open to Philippians, turns back, turn backwards till you find the Gospels. John is the fourth of the Gospel, and so if you move past Acts, you'll get to John. There in John chapter 13, let me set the scene. It's the night of Jesus' betrayal. He and his, uh, his disciples are sharing the Passover meal together. They enter an upper room. No one has arranged for a servant or a slave to wash the people's feet, like would normally happen, so it didn't get done. Jesus recognizes this. It's an opportunity. He girds his loins and he washes his disciples' feet. And then starting in verse 12, he explains the significance of his actions. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord. And rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Verse 15, I have set you, he says, an example. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Jesus uses a word for his actions in Greek. It's translated example. It means a model or a pattern of humble, sacrificial service clearly jesus wants them to imitate him clearly jesus says do like i did and so his life as a human of serving sacrificially becomes our our model our pattern But not only does Jesus say that, but Peter and Paul say it as well. So let's begin with Peter as we transition to 1 Peter chapter 2. This is like New Testament Bible drill, right? You're in John's Gospel, turn to the right towards the end of your New Testament. You'll get past Hebrews, eventually you'll get to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. He tells Christians who are slaves at that time which, by the way, was a very different type of slavery than what we were accustomed to, Peter addresses slaves who are Christians. And he tells them in chapter 2 to submit to their masters even if they're mistreated. Even if their masters don't treat them well, they should submit. And then he explains the reason why in verse 21. He says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you, An example that you should follow in his steps. And so, first of all, he speaks to the slaves. And he says, you're being mistreated wrongly. You're suffering and you're not doing anything to deserve it. Guess what? Christ left you an example. And then he fleshes that out. Well, well, what did Christ do specifically that these Christian slaves should imitate? Verse 22. Speaking of Jesus, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. In other words, Peter says, listen, Jesus didn't do anything to deserve the suffering that he's enduring, and you didn't either. Verse 23, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. In other words, Jesus, when he suffered, he didn't fight back. Neither should you. Instead, Peter writes, he entrusted himself to him who judges Justly, In other words, listen, you can entrust judgment and justice for, your wrong, for being wronged to God. So Jesus' suffering in Peter here unjustly becomes our example for doing just the same. The Greek word here translated as example, hypogrammon. It, it, it literally means to write underneath. Um, you probably learned how to write your ABCs this way my children, Dever, he's in preschool. He learns how to write his ABCs in this way. How do you do it? You have an A on the paper, right? And the teacher says, what do you do? Trace it, right? You write underneath it so that you can learn how to write an A, right? You write underneath it. That's what this word means. And so Peter says that Jesus... Well, he's our example, right? He, he, he did it for us, and so we mimic him, if you will. And then he uses sort of another image. He says, following in his footsteps. In this case, footsteps, well, they're footsteps of suffering. We save children. We might save children, they followed after the footsteps of their dad or their mom. What do we mean? We mean they, they took the same life path or the same road. They do what their parents did, right? That's the language that Peter uses. And so, and so for Peter, Jesus is our example. We follow after him. What about Paul? What about Paul? If you want to turn with me to First Corinthians chapter eleven, back towards the beginning of your New Testament. First Corinthians chapter eleven. Um, if I were to share with you all of the examples in Paul's writings where he says to Christians, this is how you should live. This is how you should act. And then he says, oh, and that's how Jesus did it. We would take another 30 minutes. So I'm just going to give sort of one example. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says that he follows Jesus' example and that they should follow his example because he follows Jesus' example. Verse 1, Paul says, follow my example. Why? Why can Paul say, follow what I do, live the way that I live, as I follow the example of Christ? Imitate me, just like I imitate him. The word literally, for example, is the idea of an imitator. Paul says, I am an imitator of Christ. And the word imitator simply refers to one who copies somebody else in what they say or what they do. Surely you've seen this in children before, where one child says, Mom, I'm hungry. And the other one says, Mom, I'm hungry. And then that same child says, Stop talking like me. And the other one says, Stop talking like me. You ever had that happen before? Surely not. But in, in case you have, that, that's, that's what this word means. It's, it's imitation. Paul says, I imitate Christ. So let's move to our fourth and final point. Becoming like Jesus is supernatural. Lest we fall into some sort of moralistic deism, or just think that we can sort of muster up enough goodness inside of us, yeah, like Jesus did that, and I can do it too. Let's close by recognizing our need for divine power and divine transformation from the inside out. And So number four, becoming like Jesus is supernatural. Henry Holloman, in the book Understanding Christian Theology, he writes to this point. He says, Christ is the ultimate model of godly living for the saved. But they must remember that any genuine imitation of Christ's Christ works inside out. Believers can manifest genuine Christ-likeness only because Christ dwells in them and reproduces His character through them. The flesh can imitate but not duplicate Christ-like characteristics. Imitation of Christ-like characteristics by the flesh is like imitation fruit. It looks like the real thing, but of course, it is fake. I recall very clearly uh, when Asher, my oldest, was two or three, and we were walking through a department store, and of course it was beautifully decorated, and there was a table, that had a centerpiece and it was beautifully decorated with the, you know, all the, the pieces around the table. And in this centerpiece was a bowl of fruit. And so my two, three-year-old son, well, he does what he does when he sees fruit. Fruit! And so he went and he grabbed the apple and he took a big bite out of it, only to, to realize that, of course, it was what? It was plastic, right? It was fake fruit. And I, I'll never remember him looking with uh, this look of disappointment and confusion, Right? Like what is this, right? He's he's used to the real thing. In the same way, we can try to mimic Christ in our flesh in our own power, but it's it's imitation. It's not the real thing. So how do we do that? One final passage, and it's in Second Corinthians chapter three. So if you're in first, simply turn a few pages over to Second Corinthians chapter three. Second Corinthians chapter three is all about Paul's comparison of the New Covenant with the Old Covenant. In fact, I preached a whole sermon on it months ago. That section concludes in verse 18. This is Paul's conclusion. He says this, And we all, referring to Christians, and we all, who with unveiled faces, uncovered faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed... Into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I don't have time to fully explain this, but Paul is using in this chapter Old Testament imagery, in particular from Exodus chapter 33, and, and Exodus chapter 34. You may recall that Moses would enter into the tent, and he would, to use the language of the Old Testament, speak with God face to face. And as a result, what happened to his face? And anybody remember? He would come out of the tent, and his face shone with the glory of God, right? And so Paul uses that in this chapter. And so he says, with unveiled faces, he says, we, we Christians, we're sort of like Moses. We, we, we contemplate the Lord's glory, and as a result, we too are changed. We too are changed into His likeness. We're being transformed into His image, Paul says, with ever-increasing glory. The point is that as Christians experience transformation, we do so become because we, we ponder Christ. We contemplate the glory of the Lord. We see Him for who He is and for what He's done. And we, and we are changed. But it's not Um, In an instant, right? This is a lifetime process. He says, with ever-increasing glory. Now, how does that happen? It comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It is a supernatural endeavor. Friends, we'll close with this. Becoming like Jesus, which is the destiny of every Christian, it's the goal of every Christian, imitating Christ, supernatural becoming like Jesus, the starting place for that process begins when you repent, when you turn from your sin and from yourself and from running life your own way, you turn from that and you turn to Jesus as your personal savior. You repent from your sins and you have faith in the good news that Jesus came and he lived the perfect life that you or I could never live, that was required by God to be right with him. Not only that, but he paid the penalty that I deserve and that you deserve, and he rose from the dead to give us new life both now and forever. The starting place is coming to know Jesus personally. It's receiving the forgiveness and the grace that we need from the fact that we don't act like Jesus. Again, John Piper, in a chapter of one of his books, entitled 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die, explains it this way. He says, Imitation, that is of Christ, imitation is not salvation. In other words, you can't get saved, you can't earn your way to heaven simply by trying to act like Jesus. Continuing, but salvation brings imitation. Christ is not given to us first as a model, but as a savior. In the experience of the believer, first comes the pardon of Christ, then the pattern. And so it begins with a personal relationship with God through faith in Christ. And so we'll leave with this question. Friends, has that happened to you? Do you know Him? Have you trusted in Christ as your Savior? That's where it begins. And for those of us who have, then we are on the path, a lifelong journey of being transformed into the image of our Savior through the power of the Holy Spirit as we ponder His glory. Close with a story here. A woman by the name of Janine Biden, in the 1996 uh, Reader's Digest article, she sort of writes this little story. She said, Getting out of the driveway was a major feat during last year's snow and ice storms. She says, One of my coworkers was telling me how he used his seven year old's baseball bat to smash the slick coat of ice on his driveway. He got cold, and so he went inside for a cup of coffee before attempting to then clean off the car from the ice. She writes, several minutes later, his son, who had been outside, came inside. (laughs) Dad, he said, I got the ice off the car. How did you do that? The father asked. Well, the same way you did. I used the baseball bat. You know, like the son in the story, um, we need an example. We need an example to emulate And friends, we have the best one ever in the God who became man. But also, like the boy in the story, we won't imitate him perfectly. As Christians, we will make mistakes. We might smash a few windows along the way. But thank God for the incarnation that we have in Jesus, the example of what a human being is meant to be. And one day, one day, when he comes back at his resurrection, we will be like him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your kindness and your goodness to us, that our destiny will forever be, that we'll be in bodies like your sons, and that we will have a character like that of your son increasingly so that that you, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. And Lord, we anticipate that day, we long for that day, as Paul says, that we might attain to the resurrection of the dead. What a glorious day it will be. Jesus, when you return to right all wrongs, to judge your enemies, to bring forth a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth, to raise our bodies from the dead so that never again will we experience suffering. So that never again will we experience death so that never again will we ever experience sin. You are a great Savior. But until then, we live our life not reaching our goal. Lord, help us to press on to take hold of that which for which you have taken hold of us, we pray. And all God's people said together, Amen. See you next week, guys.